Hello, listeners. Uh, thanks for joining us again today. And today is a very special day because it is the first time in the history of this long, long podcast, <laughs> five whole episodes. Uh, it's the first time in the history of this podcast that I have a visitor with me today. And when I initially started this podcast, I hoped that there would be a lot of conversation. And now there's actually a person on the other end, live. And uh, my friend Phil Monroe is here with me today. And I've asked him to come talk about um, his own experience of some life in the whirlwind stuff. And, um, I'll tell you a little bit about Phil. So Phil is a psychologist, a licensed psychologist and a graduate educator of counseling at BTS graduate school of counseling in the Philadelphia area. And I work with him here and, uh, we've been colleagues for a handful of years now and he's been a mentor. He was my teacher and he's a friend and, um, we have seen the Middle East and an African country at the same time we've been to these places. So it's been, we've shared some of these experiences across the globe. So thanks for coming here today and joining us, Phil. Happy to be here. Yeah. So today I want to talk a little bit. We've, we talked um, about making this a time of discussing what mistakes are and uh what they what they do for us or what part they play in our lives and um really this is going to be a conversation so there's this is less formal than maybe an interview but I'll um be asking questions but Phil's going to share with us some of his thoughts on this this topic so wherever you would like to start go for it yeah i think uh, over my 27 years of mental health work, um, I've come to realize that the work I do in therapy is one of making mistakes, learning, making the same mistakes, learning, apologizing. Uh, the process of getting to know my clients um, means that I'm going to say things and do things that I thought would fit, but don't turn out to be best in their interest. Uh, and part, I think, of the maturing as a counselor is being able to recognize that it just happened and not go into uh, some sort of guilt feeling or fear feeling like I've screwed up, but just to be able to name it and say, oh, there it is. I think something just happened. I think I stepped on something. Mm-hmm what what just happened and of course it's a little easier when you're in a power position as a therapist i think to do those things and it's a little easier when i'm not 22 doing it and you know i'm a little bit older and can and and have a little bit more confidence but it's been an essential part of just acknowledging there's that mistake again and actually it's helped me even in my parenting, to be able to transfer that same thing to parenting is to be quicker at being able to say to my children, uh, I didn't handle that very well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's easier to do that because because I am less blown away by the fact that I've made mistakes. I'm less ashamed by them. I just acknowledge it as part of my humanity because either I can go into the 
I'm such a screw up. I keep making the same mistakes and go into a shame spiral. Or I can actually say I'm continuing to learn something about myself. And thankfully, God is giving me a sensitivity to be aware of it and an opportunity to deepen the relationship with whomever I'm talking to, children, wife, or clients, colleagues, uh, I can deepen that relationship with them through this. Yeah. So if you don't mind me asking, speaking of vulnerability, if you don't mind me asking, what do you think was stopping you from, uh, I guess, what was disabling you from doing that earlier on in your life? Obviously, there's a different maturity level, but what do you think it was happening there? Yeah, I'm I'm a pastor's kid, and I grew up in a good family, but uh, we were definitely, you know, on display. And I don't blame my parents for this, maybe my context and a combination of that and me. I really was concerned about what people thought of me, and I knew that there was a public persona and a private persona, and the two didn't always match. I remember the uh, little old lady sometimes coming up and patting me on the head and telling me, oh, I wish my grandson could be like you. And I would think, yeah, right, <laughs> if you only knew. Because I knew what was inside of me. It wasn't that I was acting out terribly. Mm-hmm. But I felt that difference in the need to look good and always uh, struggled with what will people think of me if they find out I'm a fraud now, I think for those of us who go on to graduate school and beyond, we we often struggle with that. Am I as good as these other people around me? Mm-hmm. And so I think that got in the way and probably got in the way even with my relationship with God because I think in my early life I, I had multiple conversion moments because not quite sure it stuck. Uh, was God really happy with me mm-hmm. or was he just tolerating me because I said the magic words? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, in the last episode of this podcast, episode four, I talked about getting out of your own way and that being part of it of having this sense that um, we spend a lot of energy efforting against making mistakes, and in doing so, we make more sometimes. Um, Right. Is there anything you have to sort of speak to that of what you know what would you tell a person who's listening to this who or (laughs) me even um who's struggling to effort against making mistakes and so you and i work with these graduate level counseling students who are uh some of which are listening to this actually and you know i had this experience in grad school too I, I was one of those people who was looking around, comparing myself to the other students who had, some of which had been doing this for a long time. And I didn't have any professional experience doing counseling. And, you know, how do you, w- w- what's the path for those who spend a lot of their energy comparing themselves to other people or even to their ideal selves? Um, and where would that energy be better spent type of thing? Yeah, so the goal, of course, is acceptance of who we are and recognition that who we are isn't always pretty and uh, that, you know, God is at work. Uh, at least that's the way I see it. God is at work in in refining us uh, throughout our lifetime. Now, that's the goal, how to get there. Mm-hmm. I think 
acceptance is a lot easier to do when we actually look at some of the things that we're doing that work against that. So uh, in the New Testament, it talks about taking every thought captive. And there's sometimes in Christian traditions a lot of focus on uh, self-analysis and, you know, uh, how am I doing? Am I doing that right? Am I? And so it becomes almost like a judge. There's a secret judgment behind it. I'm not doing this right. I'm probably screwing up. And that evaluation, of course, makes you tense. Just imagine yourself if you were taking... Uh, no one does this anymore, I think. But if you were taking a typing test and I was standing over you and whispering, I don't know if you did that right, or you were thinking that as you were doing it, you would make lots of mistakes mm -hmm. because you were aware of and focusing on me and my presence and what did I think versus what your fingers were actually doing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, you know, who, what do we do with that? It sounds like you're talking about maybe I'm guiding you in this direction, but perhaps you're talking about sort of adjusting the internals of things of not just, you won't be able to change if someone's looking over your shoulder or not, or you might not be able to change that there are people who you consider better counselors or people than you, but you can change your perception of things. What are, what are some of the practices that go along with that in your opinion? This may sound simplistic, but I have learned to ask the so what question. Hmm. Well, so what if that person does think that about me? So what if that person is better than me? So what if I did make a mistake? That allows me then to fill in the blank. What are the fears or realities of that? Well, if that is the case, then. And then we can have more of a clear-eyed view of it. Uh, because sometimes our unspoken fears uh, drive us that we actually realize the so what isn't quite so big as we thought it was. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we don't ask those, then anxiety rules. I mean, th what we're talking here about is an existential angst about who we are and who we think we're supposed to be and what we're driving at and what we're afraid isn't true. So when we ask the so what question, we're actually going right for the jugular yeah. and saying, mm -hmm. all right, and so what if that's true? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, I really like Thomas Merton, and one of the quotes of his that I wrote down recently was, um, the cure for angst for the modern-day man is stillness. What are some of the ways that you've seen your own practice of stillness or what is, what does stillness look like for you in your life or those around you that you've seen? Yeah. I'll, I'll give you a couple of ways that I've noticed stillness being more part of my private meditation experience. First, um, I am a new Englander. We, we don't like to share our emotions publicly and I'm still that way, but I have come to embrace my emotions more over that. And so stillness is sometimes sitting with something that's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Sadness without commentary. Mm -hmm. Anger without commentary. I think, I think I was pushed in those directions by 
some of the issues in my life uh, because I couldn't do anything about it. For instance, my wife's cancer. There's not one thing I could do about that. Most of my life, I have a lot of power and can do things. I can do things in parenting. I may still can't control my kids, but I, I have something I can do. I could do nothing other than be with her. And so there was a stillness that I think I developed there. I also think um, back in my doctoral program, uh, Jim Wilhoyt, uh, who's a professor in Christian education at Wheaton College and taught our a spiritual formation class for the PsyD students there, he described for us a watchfulness. And that really helped me uh, think about that taking every thought captive differently. Instead of taking every thought captive and examining, evaluating it, and working on it, he described to us this ancient Christian tradition or practice of watchfulness, which is talking to God with your hands open, extended in front of you, and really you're saying, Lord, you see, you know what I'm experiencing. Here it is. I give it back to you. You mm-hmm. see I'm angry. You see I'm jealous. I'm embittered. I don't need to code it. I don't need to cover it up. I don't need to hide it. I just hand it back. You already know. And I think that is a more of an activity of stillness rather than, you know, digging around in myself and trying to make it right. Yeah. Yeah. It is definitely difficult to figure out where the line is between trying to manipulate things and then just letting them go and releasing them. Um, but also not doing so in such a way where you do nothing. You know, that's, I think sometimes we mistake releasing things with passivity or doing nothing. That's a good point. It's not a passive thing to have your hands open and hand them back to God because uh, he's going to speak back to you right. yeah. <laughs> if, you're, if you're open and, and you now have to do something with it. The act of not going down into rumination is a very active uh, thing you do because if you go passive, you will go right back into hopelessness, despair, ruminating. Yeah, yeah. So... If someone is ruminating or if they're having um, a hard time storing something differently, what are some of, could you give an example of maybe some replacement stories that you've found work well for yourself or people or some things that you've taught? I think there is a process of development away from Uh, rumination. And the first step is, of course, seeing it and naming it. Oh, there it is again. And naming it without all of the commentary that we normally do. There it is again. I can't believe I did that. Why do I still do this? But just to say, oh, there it is. I'm ruminating. The very act of doing that distances us just a smidgen from, from it and allows a little bit of space to grow in there. And, of course, the next practice would be, what do I want to do the next time I find myself ruminating? What do I want to do? Because mm. if I don't come with a plan, I probably will right. just go right back into the rumination. So right. I need a couple of ideas. I'm going to get up and get a cup of tea. I'm going to uh, and and focus on the heat and the smell and the taste. I'm going to 
go talk to a friend, not about my stuff, but ask them about how they're doing. Mm -hmm. So there's just a couple of very practical things. We could come up with a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. This, that's interesting that you say that I heard somebody, I was talking with a person this week who said something came up in their lives this past week and it was very distressing. It was sort of like tossing them. And this person was talking about the difficulty of grounding herself and what that looked like. And she said that instead what she decided to do is she went out with a friend for coffee and asked her about herself and um, kind of forgot about her own stuff for a little while. Sometimes I wonder if that feels a little... How would you say, like, if I were to say to you, that feels a little, um, you know, I'm going to go help someone else. Is that a flip side of the same coin at all, do you think? I'm not sure what you mean by that, but let me just say this. I know some people will say when they do that, say, well, that's superficial. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, right? distracted myself. Like, I don't myself. really care about this person. I'm just trying yeah. to use them as a distraction. Oh, I'm yeah. just, yeah, either I don't care about them or I'm just distracting. I'm not really changing anything. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that we're very habit-oriented people. Mm -hmm. And so the habit of rumination is very hard to break because you've likely been doing it your entire life. Mm -hmm. So give yourself some credit when you don't do it for 20 minutes or an hour because you were talking with somebody. That's a good thing. And did you actually give a gift to that other person by asking them to talk about themselves? Mm, A gift is a gift. Right. And all gifts that we give have multiple motivations in them. Hmm. When I give a gift, I'm also hoping to be happy about giving that gift and uh, wanting to see them enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting is sometimes you, this is my opinion, but sometimes we have to do the thing even if our motivations aren't pure yet. And then maybe it will evolve into that, I think, because we are sort of rhythmic people. Yeah. There's nothing pure about what I do. Um, I have multiple motives. Um, Mm -hmm. I need to be aware of them. I need to know them. I need not to manipulate people and deceive people. Mm -hmm. Deception would be the line for me is I pretend that I'm interested in you, but I'm not at all. Right. Yeah. We need to have integrity with what we do. Right. But integrity does not mean that I'm not getting something out of it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's also interesting to think of bringing this back to the story of... um, if you listen to the last, uh, you know, episode four, I talked about this mountain story of like, I am the mountain and not this weather. I'm not getting caught up in this weather. And sometimes that story, um, I am the mountain. I think initially it's almost impossible, if not fully impossible to believe for a lot of people. And so it's almost like you tell yourself and you live out of that story until, it becomes true one day. You know, you look back and seemingly suddenly you believe it. Yeah, we have to play act into something sometimes, which means I don't really feel this way, I don't really believe this way, but I'm going to act this way on the basis of the fact that I know or others are telling me this is true. And sometimes that acting actually brings us into a place where we come to realize it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. These are interesting concepts. I, I wonder if some people who are listening to this are getting a little 
hairs on the back of their neck standing up thinking they, you know, oh man, I, I act and it's okay. You know, yeah, it's really interesting. I'm all, you know, in this pod, as you know, working with me, but also in this podcast, I've talked a lot about this. Um, I'm all about, you know, I know there are certain limits to this, but I do think coming as you are without trying to fix things, um, coming to the table, as I call it, coming, showing up to life before you're ready is a really hard thing to do, especially, um, in my experience when there, it feels like there's a lot of judgment coming from people around you. And so, um, it does involve a lot of self-talk. It involves a lot of reminders that we might not believe right away. And, um, sort of having these scripts that we tell ourselves or read to ourselves. I'm a big believer in writing them down on, you know, little cards or note post-its or something around so that you can, it's just about repetition. It's about repeating these truths that, um, don't feel very true. Yeah, I like that. I think, um, as we're learning these scripts and trying to, uh, play out the story, uh, of our lives, I think we, sometimes find that there are places that we fall short of that story and we end up going back into a story that we used to live. Mm -hmm. And I think partly we accept that, but also we describe it. We go back and say, what happened? Why do I turn left when I want to turn right? Because you're right about passivity, what you said before. Passivity would say, well, I can't control that. I'll just try to make a better decision next time. We have more emotional and cognitive power than that. We can actually sit down and look at this clear-eyed and say, so what changed? I was on path A, and then I went to path B. What changed? What did I want more at that moment? What did I value more at that moment? What was I afraid of at that moment? And that enables us... Uh, to do that. So sometimes it's helpful to have a friend, of course, or a counselor, therapist to help you with that. Think think those things through and to even to notice where you are no longer just describing but judging. Right. Yeah. What would you say to those who have trouble discerning that, the difference between describing and judging? Any recommendations you would make? Because I think sometimes it's, it's so ingrained it's hard to step away from interpretation or judgment. Well, one simple one is if you wrote it down, how many adjectives would you have in there? Mm-hmm. Uh, adjectives are descriptors, are, are not descriptors. They are, they really do put a bias towards them. Mm, yeah. I had an awful experience today. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's interesting. I had a difficult experience today is a little less judgmental and a little bit more descriptive. Yeah, and accepting. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I I read somewhere that if you were to write down the statements that you were ruminating on, the statements that were running through your head, and then you wrote next to it, sort of made a separate column next to each of those statements, and then you write fact or interpretation, how you become more familiar. That's one of these practical steps of becoming more familiar with the things that are going through your head and how to name them 
more accurately um, and less judgmentally. Yes, and for me, it's an opportunity not only to examine myself in a more helpful, help, healthy way, but then it's also an opportunity for me that open hands, open Bible in a sense for me, which is to say, okay, God, what do you think of these things? Mm-hmm. Because I trust that you have the right view of me, and I'm not looking for a line in a, a phrase in a, a book of the Bible, but I am asking God, what is your take on this? Is this from you or is this not from you? I remember working with a client one time and we were reading um, uh, because they, it was appropriate to the context, but we were reading a passage where Jesus talks about not being afraid about what you have to say before the magistrate and noticing, aren't you more valuable than sparrows and flowers? And, uh, and it's definitely a don't be afraid um, that person struggled to hear that in a kind way. When somebody says little sheep, how can mm-hmm. you say little sheep without having a softness to you? Mm-hmm. They really heard it as irritation. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Are you still anxious? Mm-hmm. What am I going to do with you? Yeah. Attitude. And so we had the opportunity to skip back a passage to where Jesus was actually talking to religious prideful leaders who were pretending to be something they weren't. And he had a very different tone with them. Mm-hmm. He talked about, you brood of vipers, you, you know, and he was very judgmental in that sense and looking at the differences of tone. But that's really what I need to do is I need to come back and whether that's a friend or talking to God, God, what is true about mm-hmm. who I am? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, a lot of people that I work with, a lot of clients I work with, and friends of mine, and even myself, um, we I rely heavily on nature, going back into nature when I feel r- a lot of rumination. Um, Doc- David Benner has a really good book called The Gift of Being Yourself, and in in the beginning of that book, he talks about there being so many natural ways of seeing how a tulip you know, knows that it's a tulip. It doesn't have to doubt that it's, you know, it's, it doesn't have the capacity, obviously. But um, I think these, you, you sort of reference this point of Jesus himself using these natural um, images to sort of say, look at this. There is no forethought. There is no rumination of this is what I could be or this is what I should do. It's just very living in, in the moment and very much being present to the nut that they're finding in the ground or their current situation that they're in. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I think Jesus uses lots of images like that. He uses the image of shepherd and sheep a lot. And, you know, we can focus on the sheep. Sheep are dumb. They don't follow the master. Um uh, we can use it more critically, and there are reasons for that. And although this is a audio podcast, you can't see my hands, but they, I have them held together open. On the one hand, I have to have a clear-eyed view of my weaknesses and even my faults, and not just weaknesses, but things that I do that I ought not to do. Mm. I can also, at the same time, without minimizing any of those things, hold to my 
humanness in all the ways that I'm designed for to be created. We tend to fall off into, I can, I'm only going to look at the good. I'm only going to look at the bad. Shame takes us into the bad and that's all that exists. But in fact, you know, this, this person that we have been made to be contains both. And if I am going to be true to myself and true to what I'm supposed to be made, you know, the mm-hmm. true tulip, <laughs> mm-hmm. I need to be able to hold both of those things without diminishing the other. Mm. And to me, that's what I think helps people to not go down the path into toxic shame because they don't, toxic shame denies any goodness, right? It says, I am bad. It's not saying I did something bad or somebody did something bad to me. It's I at the cellular level, I'm a bad person. Yeah, yeah. Shame is is it's everywhere. I I tend to believe it's the source of all problems that we face, or all of these very distressing um, situations in life. All of our hardships that end in rumination. I think shame is at the core. I think so. In most diagnoses that show up in our manuals shame is a primary part of it and uh, our colleague uh, dr brian mayer mentioned the other day a model of therapy that talked about not just shame but the inability to accept distress in our lives and distress that's internal distress that's external that seems to be a core part of what drives people into therapy Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I don't think people necessarily name it as shame. They don't necessarily know that's what's happening. Right. Yeah. So last question, and then we'll um, close up here. But I guess with shame, this is so, because this is so prevalent, what could be helpful for listeners to um, who are really struggling with a lot of shame, um, maybe have had a lot of experiences maybe even of abuse and things done to them that are really unacceptable and extremely painful and live with this constant state of shame that's one option or there's everything in between on the spectrum right it's um people who have these passing thoughts or these things that come in every once in a while and they're almost unrecognizable because they're so subtle. What What is something that can be done to... I mean, we've been talking... You've said a couple times, you know, naming these things without the commentary. Um, and I think that that's hard. I think shame makes it hard to even identify what the commentary is. And I think shame is very invested in keeping us ignorant of its power Mm -hmm. um what are some things that can be done or again i am i am very much about um being and not doing so when i say practices i don't even necessarily mean like behaviorally but maybe it starts there i don't know but just you know what maybe a word that you would give of advice to give to these people who are struggling with shame Well, especially for those who are carrying shame for what's been done to them or maybe even physical defects that they have, uh, 
or believe they have. I think one question to ask, you might not be able to answer it yet, but one question to ask is, whose shame am I carrying? I have believed that it's mine. I am dirty. I am abused. I am, and those seem very truthful, but it's not the whole truth. Uh, I remember um, Dr. Langberg, Diane Langberg, telling me about a novel and an illustration in that novel. And so I won't be able to tell you which one it is because I've forgotten at this point. But there was a man with a humpback who um, lived in a kingdom. And the king, as he came by, he was a rather poor man, but as the king came by on his horse, he saw the humpback and he scorned the humpback, shamed him publicly. And the the man with the hump uh, left there feeling very uh, distraught and down in despair because of his shame. But he came to realize, uh, I'll shorten it up, but he came to realize, no, he wasn't shame, but he had been forced to wear shame by the king. And so he needed to, at least in his mind, give the clothes that the king gave him back to the king. And so that's the question. If you've been harmed by others, whose shame? And what would happen? What would it be like? Imagine this. Imagine the thoughts and the feelings if the shame returned to its rightful owner. How might you feel differently? You might not be able to buy it yet, but that could be an interesting activity to do on your own or with a trusted friend. So here's my question. I'm sorry. This is my way of doing things. <laughs> this is what I. This is what that brings to my mind. Is how then do we not fall into the temptation of shaming someone back to sort of. You know, I I don't think you're saying this, but maybe some are hearing this as give this clothing back to the person who it belongs to or who gave it to you. But how do we sort of exit this cycle? What You know, how do we do this of exiting the cycle? Because I think it's just as toxic, obviously, and I think we do get into cycles. We feel shame, we shame back, or we find a different place to direct it. Sure. Uh, What do we do in that situation? Well, some things we may do will be rather painful both for ourselves and for others. It doesn't mean that we are continuing the cycle. Uh a different analogy is if somebody commits a crime and I seek justice by having them put in prison or having paying a penalty, that is not vengeance. Mm-hmm. That is justice. That mm-hmm. is setting things to rights. Mm-hmm. Now, the person who is the offender can say, you're just trying to harm me. You're just trying to make me pay back. And I pay, yes, but I'm trying to set things back to rights. So I wouldn't necessarily uh, say that handing back the shame is going to be a happy thing or something that will be easy or even accepted by the person who rightfully owns that shame. Where would it be different? Um, The cycle could go on in a negative way if I decide I am going to take vengeance to do so. I'm going to use untrue means to get this um, vigilantism Mm -hmm. or 
internalizing that and doing self-harm. Yeah. Yeah. Or even pretending that everything's okay. And in my heart, feeling that cycle inside me of bitterness. Right. Pain. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. Thanks. Well, uh, this is hopefully opening some doors for you listeners. And, um, I hope this is helpful of thinking of how can we as people find ways of naming things without shame, getting the word in edgewise or getting the last word or whatever that is. And I, Here's the tiny, you know, I'm all about invitations. Here's a tiny, I'm going to end with a bigger one, but here's a tiny invitation is think about how you can just identify these ruminations or identify these shame stories in your life without, um, even just, you know, even scurrying to get rid of them or eliminate them necessarily right away, but just even to identify them and to just acknowledge them and, and expose them to light. And um, when I say expose them to light, what would it be like to just say, this is shame. What I'm feeling right now, my temptation naturally is to change what I'm doing or to make myself um, more acceptable to this other person so that I don't feel shame of their judgment. But what would it be like instead to to hear and feel that inner script of the, I'm not acceptable to this person and say, so what? Whose stuff is that? It's not my stuff. That's not my responsibility. It's not my obligation to make myself okay for this other person. Um there's a whole lot of nuances in there, so don't get caught up in the nuances. The devil's in the details, right? So um, if you're, that's another place where shame can creep in the cracks. So just you know, let it sit for there, there for a minute. But think about that and naming fears, naming shame, naming the scripts that it's bringing up to the surface for you. If I could add, yeah. I sometimes ask my clients to list the what-ifs and the if-onlys that come into their head mm. throughout the week and just to see where those go. Yeah. Mm. That's, I think that's hitting what you're talking about, which mm. is naming, identifying those shame spots and those anxiety spots that lead us down those stories that we'd rather not go. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Well, any last words? Or is that your last word, Phil? <laughs> That's my last word. Okay. We're on a journey. When you notice things that you don't like about yourself, have a little chuckle because you're human. Good word. I like it. Well, here is uh, the invitation for me from this episode. Um, maybe you will this week or in the coming weeks as you reflect on this topic and you reflect on your own experience with shame or judgment or narratives that you let get to you, I would invite you to do this. Write your, write, just sit down, give yourself an hour or so and 
maybe like take yourself out on a date as I like to call it, take yourself to a coffee shop or something somewhere that you don't typically do for yourself and, um, sit down and maybe write a letter to this experience that causes a lot of distress to you, causes a lot of rumination to you. And, um, in that letter name, what this script has, has shown you, how it's been your teacher, how it has led you to a greater truth about yourself, because isn't that true? Isn't it true that, um, through the, through the suffering, we have this opportunity to see a different kind of reality and different perspective. Um, how has this experience maybe given you a different perspective of yourself that's more accurate according to the truth that is not shaming, that is not blaming or judgmental and write instead of, um, letting that shame possess you, write a thank you letter to that experience. Um, not that it was good, not that it was okay that it happened, but that you are taking this back in a way and thanking it for growing you as a person. Um, the gems are in these experiences. They offer us a lot of insight and um, opportunity. And that's not all it is. It's painful and it's not okay. And it's, it, there are so many things that should not happen. And let's call them what they are. And also let's thank them for bringing us to a more grounded truth. Um, about ourselves eventually, even if we're not there yet, that's okay. My blessing to you today is even when you feel the dark blanket and heaviness of shame, even when you doubt yourself, even when you ruminate and you have scripts of shame and sorrow and despair and hopelessness and pain, you are beloved you are enough, you are chosen, you are loved, and if you live out of that story, you might even begin to believe that, and so I impart that to you, you are beloved, and that's your identity. Thanks for coming, thanks Phil for joining us this week, and I hope you have a great week, take good care.